Hey everybody, CJ here, your renaissance man for the new dark age, back on the Gorilla Scholar Warrior path, here with another extra strength, non-drowsy, organic, and locally grown megadose of Dangerous History. This is episode 106 of the Dangerous History podcast. Finally, we're getting to the last of this, what ended up being non-contiguous series, part 7 in our History of American Slavery series, this is going to be the final installment, The End of Chattel Slavery in America. But before we get into that, though, here are a few announcements, beginning with the Patreon shoutouts for this episode. And I have one excellent individual to thank for stepping up to help support the Dangerous History podcast over at patreon.com slash profcj. Big thanks to B.R. Waldo. B.R. Waldo, Thank you very much for stepping up to help out the show over at Patreon. Remember, if you go over to patreon.com slash profcj and sign up to support the show for at least a dollar per episode, and more is certainly appreciated, but for just a minimum of a dollar per episode, I'll thank you by name in the next show that I produce. And in addition to that, you'll have access to special bonus episodes over there that are available nowhere else. Also, another announcement, uh, about a week from when I'm recording this approximately, I will be headed up to Porkfest, the Porcupine Freedom Festival in Lancaster, New Hampshire in late June, and I will be presenting there at high noon on Saturday, June 25th, and the topic of my presentation is Applying Guerrilla Methods Beyond War. And basically what I'm going to be doing is identifying some key practices and approaches and strategies and so on of successful practitioners of irregular warfare. And I'm also going to be looking at parallels outside of the realm of war, people who are able to get things done, whether as activists or content creators or what have you, in the manner of a guerrilla fighter, in the sort of David and Goliath, somebody with, on paper, minimal resources and huge disadvantages, nonetheless being able to triumph. So I hope if you're anywhere near Lancaster, New Hampshire, that you'll come see me on June 25th. Again, please got to throw out the uh, pass out the hat. If you can spare anything, I really still could use some help with traveling money. Several of you have kicked in with donations, large and small, to help me out getting up to Porkfest. And I very much am grateful for each and every one of those. But if any of you listening could spare a few bucks to help me out between now and approximately June 23rd, which is when I'll be departing. Send a, send a little one-time donation through PayPal or Bitcoin or what have you. If, if you have a few spare bucks and can help me out, I would greatly appreciate it because it is approximately a 1,300-mile trip each way from down here in Florida Man Territory, where I reside, up to Lancaster, New Hampshire. It's 1,300 miles, even in the relatively fuel-efficient silver bullet, that's going to that's gonna cost something. And in addition, I'm going to have to crash at motels uh, at about the halfway point on the way up and the way back, in addition to other you know miscellaneous expenses of a road trip of that length. So anything anyone can spare will be very helpful to getting me all the way up there and back. I kind of need some crowdfunding on this. I'm a man of modest means. Also, one more thing before I launch into the meat of today's episode, I just want to say that I'll be putting a link in today's show notes to the website of Raymond Guilford. Ray is the artist who designed the current Dangerous History podcast iTunes cover art, which I absolutely love. 
And I mentioned him back when I rolled out that cover art. I was going to link to his site when I rolled out the cover art, I guess a couple months back now. But at the time, his site was under renovation, but it's up and running now. So if you need any sort of graphic design type work, anything like that, I hope you'll check out Ray over at RaymondGilford.com. And again, link in today's show notes. All right, so let's talk about the end of slavery in America. And I am still planning on sometime in the future, perhaps... Uh, this fall, you know, towards the end of this year, something like that, doing a series on the American Civil War. And yeah, I know there's technical reasons why you could argue it's not a civil war. I completely understand and agree with that. But that's the colloquial handle under which most people know this conflict. So I use it myself interchangeably with things like war between the states and whatever. So because I'm planning on doing that series, this is not going to be a huge, like, detailed look at the Civil War itself and the operations of that war and that sort of thing. Maybe a little bit of that will come up. It'll mostly be on the aspects of that war specifically relating to slavery going away in North America. And I'm not going to go into much detail here about the American abolitionist movement Not because it's not important or interesting or didn't have a role in helping to bring about the end of slavery in America. Obviously, it's all of those things. But because at some point in the future, I'm going to give the topic of American abolitionism its own spotlight, perhaps as a Patreon bonus episode to show supporters, perhaps as a regular Dangerous History podcast episode, not sure, but... I think the American abolitionist movement is fascinating. It's got some good and bad aspects. I think there's a lot to learn from it. I think it's very important. But because I'm going to give it its own standalone episode some point down the road, I'm not going to be you know, getting into the intricate details of that movement in this episode. Anyway, there are lots of people who say that the American Civil War was about slavery and only slavery and nothing but slavery. And there are those who say the Civil War had nothing at all to do with slavery whatsoever. Both of those points of view, I believe, are wrong. I I think it's factually inaccurate to say that the war was only about slavery, and that was really all that was going on. I also think it is not accurate at all that it is trying to whitewash the motives of a lot of Confederate leaders to pretend like protecting slavery was not a big motive in the minds of many Confederate leaders. Now, of course, we would differentiate between the motives of the political leaders and the high military command versus the motives of the common people and the common enlisted men in the Confederate army, which might be very different. But to pretend like slavery played no motivation in the secession of the southern states and in the motives of the Confederate leaders, to me, is really going to the opposite extreme, overcompensating for the mainstream narrative, which is more the first the first view of the Civil War that I mentioned, the idea that it's about slavery, only slavery, and nothing but slavery. And so people always overcompensate when they're knocking down a, a false narrative that's too one-sided. They always overcompensate the other direction. And so we go from... The Civil War was about nothing but slavery, to slavery had nothing at all to do with the Civil War. Neither of those, I think, are correct. I think clearly slavery was one of the biggest issues between North and South in the decades prior to the Civil War. And while there were other issues and divergences, even going down to the cultural level, I mean, read a book like Albion Seed, the people who came 
and colonized the American South were very different culturally than the people who colonized the North. And there are differences in terms of economic preferences and certain political beliefs. But to act like the difference over slavery was not a big deal, to me, is wishful thinking at best. I think the interpretation put forth by Jeffrey Hummel in his book, Emancipating Slaves and Slaving Freemen, is probably the one that's closest to reality and the one that I would endorse. And um, if you'll recall, I think I might have mentioned it previously somewhere. I know I've, I've mentioned this book before on this show. It's, in my opinion, the best kind of overview of the Civil War out there. And his conclusion is that if you break the question into two parts, and instead of just saying kind of why did the war happen, if you say, okay, number one, why did the southern states secede? And then number two, why was the Union willing to use military force to hold them into the United States? Break that into two parts, and, and it ends up basically making neither side look good. And that's sort of my answer to, like, who you're rooting for in the Civil War. My answer is nobody. You know, my answer is, like, Canada. And I'm, I'm being facetious there. But at the end of my studies on the Civil War, and we'll see if, if this changes as I do more research prior to doing a series on it. But at this point, my attitude is kind of a pox on both your houses. But anyway, Jeffrey Hummel's argument is that the the main reason the South seceded really was slavery, but the main reason the North decided to wage war on them to prevent them from seceding was not that they so desperately desired to free all the slaves. It was simply the desire to keep them in the United States, to keep the southern states within the United States. And even Peter Colchin who is a little bit more mainstream in his attitudes than Hummel, admits at least some of the same thing. Peter Colchin writes, quote, The Civil War began as a war for and against Southern independence. Although slavery was the issue that both underlay and precipitated the conflict between North and South, the initial war goals of both sides were simple and only indirectly linked to the peculiar institution. Confederates fought for the right to secede and form their own country. Federal forces fought to prevent them from doing so. End quote. And as Peter Colchin and many other good historians point out, it's only as the war drags on in time and gets really costly that the Union government, including Abraham Lincoln, increasingly transformed the war in terms of their rhetoric and their goals and their policies, not only to end slavery, but to completely renovate the American South. And many historians basically say by about 1863, it's in a way a revolutionary war, and it's the Union who are the revolutionary forces trying to overturn the status quo of what the United States was like prior to the war, in particular, mostly focused on the South. And it's just kind of interesting to me because it shows how, just like today, the U.S. government can be very flexible, let's just say, in its stated war aims. And it's very happy to swap them out whenever it's convenient in almost a sort of Orwellian sense. So, you know, you start a war against Iraq because they supposedly have weapons of mass destruction when that's proven pretty decisively to be bullshit based on fabricated intelligence. Then you just change the narrative and, and change it into some sort of human rights thing. Oh, Saddam Hussein was bad, and, and, uh, and we want Iraqi schoolgirls to get a good education or whatever, right? And the same thing with Afghanistan. You go in there to um, supposedly get the people who did 9-11, and when it turns into a nasty quagmire, you try and add all of these humanitarian, giant, noble, moral crusade-type goals to rebuild society there and do all this nation-building and what have you. And, and it's just kind of typical of manipulating the narrative. Now, 
I'm not saying you can't you can't have some positive side effects. I think we'd all probably agree that ending of slavery is a positive side effect of the Civil War. But the notion that the North began the war, that the Union government began the war, believing like this is a war for liberating the slaves is nonsense. There's not a shred of evidence to support that. Now, a few radical abolitionists who did not have political power in the North might have seen it that way or at least hoped it would go that way. But as far as the people holding the levers of power in the federal government in 1860, 61, 62, um, no significant ones ever, I, I think, really saw it as a war of liberation. Lincoln, who, if you'll recall from previous episodes, was never a real abolitionist, changed his tune on slavery throughout the war. From his inaugural address through the first half or so of the war, he kind of consistently insisted that the war was not being fought against slavery itself, but instead was being fought over the issue of secession. And he did always say that he was against slavery and that he thought that it was wrong. But that's not really that doesn't take much to say in an abstract theoretical sense, it's morally wrong and and, and I wish it would go away. Frankly, that's not much different from the lip service paid by slave owners like Thomas Jefferson in an earlier generations, saying things like, well, of course, slavery is bad in an abstract moral sense, and I, th- and I think it's bad and should be ended. But, but of course, there's uh, nothing much that can be done about it in the foreseeable future. So we're just going to have to learn to deal with it. A lot of Lincoln's statements prior to kind of the midpoint of the war weren't much different than that. So let's start with a few excerpts from his first inaugural address in 1861. And the context of this is the Deep South states had already seceded and formed the Confederate States of America. The so-called Upper South states that later joined the Confederacy, like Virginia, Tennessee, North Carolina, etc., hadn't done so yet. They remained in the Union kind of waiting to see what Lincoln was going to do. So this inaugural address, the Upper South is still all in the Union, and Fort Sumter has not yet happened, but the Deep South has seceded. And as we'll see in this inaugural address, Lincoln outlines his stances on two key issues of the day, secession and the institution of slavery. And Lincoln clearly opposed secession, but he was a bit more ambiguous on the issue of slavery. He made clear that slavery could continue to exist, and he thought that was his constitutional duty to allow it to do so in the established slave states. And in fact, Lincoln's administration supported a proposed amendment known as the Corwin Amendment, which I'll mention more about later, that would constitutionally guarantee slavery in every state where it already existed at the time the amendment was passed. Uh, But Lincoln reiterated his belief that slavery should not be expanded into new territories. So I'm just going to share with you a few excerpts of this inaugural address. In his first inaugural address, Lincoln had only the following to say about slavery. Quote, Apprehension seems to exist among the people of the southern states that, by the accession of a Republican administration, their property and their peace and personal security are to be endangered. There's never been any reasonable cause for such apprehension. Indeed, the most ample evidence to the contrary has all the while existed and been open to their inspection. I do but quote from one of my own previous speeches when I declare that I have no purpose directly or indirectly to interfere with the institution of slavery in the states where it exists. I believe I have no lawful right to do so and I have no inclination to do so. One section of our country believes slavery is right and ought to be extended, while the other believes it is wrong and ought not to be extended. This is the only substantial dispute. 
And then on the issue of secession, Lincoln had much more to say. Here's Lincoln talking about that in his first inaugural. A disruption of the Federal Union heretofore only menaced is now formidably attempted. I hold that, in contemplation of universal law and of the Constitution, the union of these states is perpetual. Perpetuity is implied, if not expressed, in the fundamental law of all national governments. It is safe to assert that no government proper ever had a provision in its organic law for its own termination. Continue to execute all the express provisions of our national constitution, and the Union will endure forever, it being impossible to destroy it, except by some action not provided for in the instrument itself. Again, if the United States be not a government proper, but an association of states, in the nature of contract merely, can it, as a contract, be peaceably unmade by less than all the parties who made it? One party to a contract may violate it, break it, so to speak, but does it not require all to lawfully rescind it? Descending from these general principles, we find the proposition that, in legal contemplation, the Union is perpetual, confirmed by the history of the Union itself. The Union is much older than the Constitution. It was formed, in fact, by the Articles of Association in 1774. It was matured and continued by the Declaration of Independence in 1776. It was further matured, and the faith of all the then 13 states expressly plighted and engaged that it should be perpetual by the Articles of Confederation in 1778. And finally, in 1787, one of the declared objects for ordaining and establishing the Constitution was, quote, to form a more perfect union, end quote. But if destruction of the Union by one or by a part only of the states be lawfully possible, the Union is less perfect than before the Constitution, having lost the vital element of perpetuity. It follows from these views that no state upon its own mere motion can lawfully get out of the Union, that resolves and ordinances to that effect are legally void, and that acts of violence within any state or states against the authority of the United States are insurrectionary or revolutionary according to circumstances. I therefore consider that, in view of the Constitution and the laws, the Union is unbroken, and to the extent of my ability I shall take care, as the Constitution itself expressly enjoins upon me, that the laws of the Union be faithfully executed in all the states." In doing this, there needs to be no bloodshed or violence, and there shall be none unless it be forced upon the national authority. The power confided to me will be used to hold, occupy, and possess the property and places belonging to the government and to collect the duties and imposts by which he means to continue to collect federal tariffs and taxes in the seceded southern states. Back to Lincoln. But beyond what may be necessary for these objects, there will be no invasion, no use of force against or among the people anywhere. If a minority in such a case will secede rather than acquiesce, they make a precedent which in turn will divide and ruin them. For a minority of their own will secede from them whenever a majority refuses to be controlled by such minority. Plainly, the central idea of secession is the essence of anarchy. A majority held in restraint by constitutional checks and limitations and always changing easily with deliberate changes of popular opinions and sentiments is the only true sovereign of a free people. Whoever rejects it does of necessity fly to anarchy or to despotism. Unanimity is impossible. The rule of a minority as a permanent arrangement is wholly inadmissible. 
so that rejecting the majority principle, anarchy or despotism in some form is all that is left. A little bit further on in the address, Lincoln tries to, again, put the ball in the Confederacy's court, having pledged to continue to try to collect union taxes in the seceded states. He then says that it's not going to be his fault if the result is that there's a war. Back to Lincoln's speech. In your hands, my dissatisfied fellow countrymen, and not in mine, is the momentous issue of civil war. The government will not assail you. You can have no conflict without being yourselves the aggressors. You have... No oath registered in heaven to destroy the government, while I shall have the most solemn one to preserve, protect, and defend it. Now, not long after this speech, of course, the war got underway after Confederate forces fired on the federal fort known as Fort Sumter in Charleston Harbor in South Carolina. And after Fort Sumter, several of the upper South states who had not seceded up till then in the initial rush after Lincoln's election did secede and join the Confederacy, namely the states of Virginia, North Carolina, Tennessee, and Arkansas. But, of course, this left four slave states still in the Union, even after Fort Sumter, Delaware, Maryland, Kentucky, and Missouri. Plus, a little bit later on, West Virginia, once it split off from Virginia in the middle of the war. Now, these states, which are often referred to as the border states, all had slaves, though, admittedly, none of them in nearly as big of numbers as the Deep South states did. Over the course of the war, the governments of Maryland and Missouri would abolish slavery within their own state government. But Delaware and Kentucky would not, and would only have slavery ended by the passage of the 13th Amendment, actually technically after the war was over. So throughout the entire course of the war, there were slave states in the Union. And in fact, slavery continued to exist in Washington, D.C. until partway through the war. I forget exactly when that was undone. Now, at the start of the war, Lincoln was positively obsessed with keeping these remaining slave states in the Union, inside the Union at all costs. And that's why he exerted a lot of political pull on behalf of the so-called Corwin Amendment, even before he took office. Just a little bit about the Corwin Amendment, which he kind of which he actually referred to indirectly in his inaugural address. I don't think in a section that I quoted from just now, but there's a line in there where he kind of vaguely says, I know there's an amendment that's intended to make slavery perpetual where it already exists, and I have no no objections to that amendment and am okay with it becoming law. And he exerted at least some political pull behind the scenes to help the Corwin Amendment get through Congress. And the exact text of the Corwin Amendment, which would have been the 13th Amendment had it passed, was as follows, quote, No amendment of this Constitution having for its object any interference within the states with the relations between their citizens and those described in second section of the first article of the Constitution as all other persons shall originate with any state that does not recognize that relation within its own limits, or shall be valid without the assent of every one of the states composing the Union, end quote. And the net result of that was that no state, if this amendment had gone into the Constitution, been ratified, no state would have ever been forced by other states or by the federal government to get rid of slavery without it consenting to it which for practical purposes would have made slavery perpetual where it already existed until such time as those states themselves chose to phase it out. Now, Lincoln supported this, 
And this amendment passed the House in February of 1861, passed the Senate in March, and then went to the states for final ratification. But ultimately, because of the war and everything that went along with it, only four states would ratify it. Remember, the South wasn't even participating in the U.S. government at the time. It was trying to be the Confederacy. So the states that did ratify this amendment were Maryland, itself not surprising, as probably the most pro-Confederate leaning of the border states, but also Ohio and Lincoln's own Illinois, and one, one more, I forget which, and neglected to stick it in my notes. But anyway, speaking of Maryland, of the slave states that were still in the Union after Fort Sumter, Maryland seemed by far the most important to Lincoln. And Lincoln was willing to do some very constitutionally and legally dubious things in the border states to maintain Union control there. And in Maryland, he pulled out all the stops. Maryland had a lot of Confederate uh, sympathizers in it, and had always been particularly tight with Virginia. And so when Virginia joined the Confederacy, it looked for a while like Maryland, it was just a done deal that Maryland would soon follow. But of course, given the geography of Maryland in relation to Virginia and Washington, D.C., Lincoln's government was just obsessed with holding Maryland in the Union no matter what, and this ultimately would include violating a lot of the civil liberties of Confederate-sympathizing Marylanders, including arresting a whole bunch of Maryland state politicians without any kind of charge or habeas corpus or anything like that in order to prevent the Maryland legislature from potentially voting to secede. Lincoln even had the Maryland legislature shut down by federal troops and marshals and had, I believe, the mayor of Baltimore thrown into prison for a while, simply based on, on their opinions. Even in Kentucky and Missouri, Lincoln was determined to do virtually whatever it took to keep those states in the Union and to avoid having the war look like it's a war all about ending slavery. Now, Delaware had slavery, but very few slaves, and it was, as far as I'm aware, not a state that had much pro-Confederate uh, population in it. But Missouri and Kentucky did have fair amounts of Confederate sympathizers. And so Lincoln did a lot of things out there that were almost authoritarian as the things he did in Maryland. And one interesting episode that, no, that uh, illustrates how much early in the war Lincoln was trying to avoid having the war be about slavery was out in Missouri, a Union general named John Fremont, who was a Republican, a much stronger abolitionist-leaning guy than Lincoln, and who had been a hero of the war with Mexico in the 1840s, he was put in the early phases of the Civil War in charge of being sort of the military governor of Missouri. And he used his authority out there, Fremont did, to give a limited emancipation order in 1861. And it was very limited. It only applied to slaves who lived in certain specified counties of Missouri, and it only applied to slaves in those counties whose owners were known to be pro-Confederate. And Fremont declared that slaves in those parts of Missouri that were owned by pro-Confederate owners were declared free. Now, when Lincoln found out that Fremont had done this, he not only fired John Fremont from his position, but used his power as commander-in-chief to rescind, to override Fremont's emancipation order. And throughout the next year or a bit more of the war, abolitionists were extremely frustrated with the fact that Lincoln not only seemed uninterested in doing much about slavery, but in fact was in many instances, such as undoing Fremont's order and firing Fremont, 
seeming to act against any possibility of ending slavery or some sort of emancipation. And one of those who bashed Lincoln for 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 his seeming unwillingness to do much about slavery in the early days of the war was a newspaper editor named Horace Greeley. And there's a very famous letter that Lincoln wrote back to Horace Greeley in 1862. Horace Greeley was the editor of the very influential New York newspaper, the New York Tribune. And he had written an editorial that was entitled The Prayer of of Twenty Millions, in which he very aggressively questioned Lincoln's failure to emancipate slaves. And then Lincoln spelled out his intentions about all this in a very famous letter back to Horace Greeley. Here's the letter. It's fairly short. Executive Mansion, Washington, August 22, 1862. Honorable Horace Greeley, dear sir, as to the policy I, quote, seem to be pursuing, end quote, as you say, I have not meant to leave anyone in doubt. I would save the Union. My paramount object in this struggle is to save the Union, and it is not either to save or to destroy slavery. If I could save the Union without freeing any slave, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing all the slaves, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing some and leaving others alone, I would also do that. What I do about slavery and the colored race, I do because it helps to save the Union. And what I forbear, I forbear because I do not believe it would help to save the Union. I have here stated my purpose according to my view of official duty, and I intend no modification of my oft-expressed personal wish that all men everywhere could be free. Yours, A. Lincoln. End quote from Lincoln's letter. By the way, if you happen to catch the sound of any raindrops or thunder in the background, don't worry about it. It's a typical summer afternoon thunderstorm here in the good old Sunshine State. Anyway, it's important to note that in the story of the ending of slavery in America, as was also very much the case in the ending of slavery almost everywhere else it had previously existed in the Western Hemisphere, while the official decision might have ultimately come from or been ratified by some sort of central government, the actions of the slaves themselves played very important roles in bringing about the conditions that caused the end of slavery as well. And in some cases, they, at least to some degree, forced some of their owners and their government's hands by their own actions, making slavery more and more just kind of unworkable. And though there were no major large-scale violent slave uprisings in the South during the war, slaves nevertheless increased their usual amounts of various sorts of kind of small-scale and low-key rebellions and insubordinations and so on. And related to this, check out a very interesting book by the great James C. Scott, whose work I reference so often on this show, called Domination and the Arts of Resistance, which is all about the various kind of non-overt ways that subordinate groups, whether they be slaves or serfs or peasants or simply poor workers dealing with oppressive bosses or what have you, the various non-overt ways that subordinate groups fight back against their oppressors. The African-American scholar W.E.B. Du Bois, in his book Black Reconstruction in 1935, compared Southern slaves' behavior 
during the Civil War to something like a general strike. And in fact, subsequent research into this phenomenon has tended to support this characterization. Historian Peter Colchin puts it this way, quote, By refusing to cooperate with the slave regime, in other words, by refusing to act like slaves, blacks throughout the South struck a mortal blow to slavery, end quote. Now, these sorts of methods of resistance, things which were always present, always were done periodically by the slaves, but which increased noticeably during the war, included things like deliberate slowdowns, just overall non-deferential attitudes, disobedience, absenteeism, all these kinds of things and many more. And in general, the closer Union troops got to an area of the South, the more the slaves in that area would exhibit this kind of behavior, because in fact, they heard a lot of rumors and things like this, and oftentimes were aware if there was a Union army approaching close to where they lived. And when the Union armies got pretty close to where they lived, many slaves voted with their feet and deserted for Union lines. Interestingly, slaves had various perceptions of the war and how it was going over the course of it. And it's kind of interesting. Sometimes they had very accurate information. Sometimes they did not. And sometimes the way they pieced it together based on rumors and things they eavesdropped from their masters and so on, some, sometimes these things would end up being more or less accurate and sometimes kind of amusingly not. And just to give you one example that I came across that's interesting is some of the conceptions the slaves had apparently of how the war actually started. Apparently, a lot of them somehow or other put it together that the war really stemmed from a personal confrontation between Abraham Lincoln and Jefferson Davis. And one version of this story that we eventually get from a former slave, I guess, is, and then this kind of circulated among many slaves during the war, was that the war started with this personal confrontation between Lincoln and Davis, in which Lincoln told Davis to free all the slaves, and Davis refused, and that's when the war started. Now, I think it's pretty understandable and excusable that someone in the position of the slaves might hear something along these lines and believe it, but what's a lot less excusable is how many modern-day Americans' views of this war and of America's other wars are really not much more mature and subtle than this. Very simple, good guy, bad guy. The war's about simple causes, and it's all about just kind of a personal rivalry almost. So, you know, World War II started because Hitler said, I want to take over the world. And Winston Churchill was like, no. And then they went to war. A lot of Americans' views of history today are not a whole lot more sophisticated than that. And of course, when you have a view of history that's very naive and, and unsophisticated and tends to paint these things in very much almost Forrest Gumpian ways, as my friend Ben Stone would put it, the Forrest Gump view of history, right? Well, President Kennedy was walking along and someone shot him, that kind of thing, right? When you have that view of history, then you become a much more easy mark for the con men of the present. By the way, on the subject of the Civil War starting supposedly because Lincoln told Jeff Davis to free all the slaves and Jeff Davis said no, if that was in fact how the war had started, then the notion that this war is a simplistic, one-sided, easy-to-understand war of pure liberation on the part of Lincoln in the North would actually be closer to reality. The truth, however, is 
in this case, as it often is, a lot more complicated and murky. On the question of slavery, as we saw, Lincoln, throughout almost two years of the war, was very accommodating regarding the question of slavery, and always insisting that the war was not about freeing slaves at all. And he was in this political situation where he's trying to balance different factions within his base. He's got moderate Republicans who support him, who aren't really gung-ho for radical moves against slavery. He's got the so-called war Democrats, who for the most part support him. These are pro-war Northern Democrats. And then he's also got the so-called radical Republicans, many of whom in his first few years as president were very disillusioned with him. And the radical Republicans were a lot more serious in their opposition to slavery. And so Lincoln's trying to tack back and forth between these two groups and adjusting this as the war goes on its course, and the result is you get a lot of inconsistency. But just a few days after the bloody Battle of Antietam, also known as Sharpsburg, in September 1862, a battle which, by the way, as far as I'm aware, still is the bloodiest day in American history, the bloodiest single day in American history. This battle was a tactical draw, but a strategic victory for the Union. And what I mean by that is, when you look actually at what happens on the battlefield, neither army really decisively beats the other. But as a result of the losses they sustained in this bloody stalemate, the Confederates who had invaded into Union territory were forced to withdraw back to Virginia. So that's why I say it was a tactical draw, but a strategic victory for the Union. And of course, the Lincoln administration and the Union... uh newspapers, the the ones friendly to Lincoln into the war at least, played this up as like a complete one-sided ass-whipping, the Battle of Antietam, even though it was a lot more just like an extremely bloody draw. But the Union up to this point in the war had won very few big battles in the East, so they're trying to play it up as the greatest one-sided victory ever. And just a few days after this battle, which they were treating as a massive victory, Lincoln announced that he would move against slavery on New Year's Day 1863 if the Confederacy did not surrender to the Union prior to that. Now, Lincoln himself described this as purely a tactical military measure designed to weaken the Confederacy. And he referred to it himself, his own words, he called it his last card to try to salvage the Union's cause in the war, because up till this point in the war, they hadn't been doing very well, especially in the East. And of course, when the Confederacy, in fact, failed to give up by the end of 1862, he issued the Emancipation Proclamation. Now, I would imagine if you went up to random Americans on the street and asked them to describe the Emancipation Proclamation, they would probably say something along the lines of, it's what ended slavery in America, or it's when Lincoln freed all the slaves. But in fact, that's not what the Emancipation Proclamation was. It was much, much more limited than that. Most people probably think the Emancipation Proclamation ended slavery, oblivious to the fact that that wasn't done throughout the United States until the 13th Amendment, which technically speaking wasn't even fully ratified until after the war was over. At the time that he issued it, Lincoln still believed that freeing all of the slaves in the United States would be a massive political mistake, and so slaves in areas that remained loyal to the Union remained in bondage. So when you read the Emancipation Proclamation and what it says and how it justifies itself and the exceptions it makes, it's a much less inspiring document than its title would indicate. So here's some of the meat of the proclamation. 
I, Abraham Lincoln, President of the United States, by virtue of the power in me vested as Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy of the United States in time of actual armed rebellion against authority and government of the United States, and as a fit and necessary war measure for suppressing said rebellion... Do on this first day of January in the year of our Lord, 1863, and in accordance with my purpose, so to do publicly proclaimed for the full period of 100 days from the first, from the day first above mentioned, order and designate as the states and parts of states wherein the people thereof respectively are in this day in rebellion against the United States, the following, to wit, Arkansas, Texas, Louisiana, except the parishes of St. Bernard, Plaquemine, Jefferson, St. John's, St. Charles, St. James, Ascension, Assumption, Terrebonne, Lafourche, St. Mary, St. Martin, and Orleans, including the city of New Orleans. In other words, those are all the parishes to which the Emancipation Proclamation will not apply. And forgive me if I've uh, butchered any of those French pronunciations too badly. Continuing on with the proclamation, Mississippi, Alabama, Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, and Virginia, except the 48 counties designated as West Virginia, and also the counties of Berkeley, Accomack, Northampton, Elizabeth City, York, Princess Anne, and Norfolk, including the cities of Norfolk and Portsmouth, and which accepted parts are for the present left precisely as if this proclamation were not issued. And by virtue of the power and for the purposes of aforesaid, I do order and declare that all persons held as slaves within said designated states and parts of states are and henceforward shall be free, and that the executive government of the United States, including the military and naval authorities thereof, will recognize and maintain the freedom of said persons. End excerpt from the Emancipation Proclamation. Now, as you could tell if you were paying attention, the proclamation was rather limited. At the time it was issued, it actually freed relatively very few slaves, mostly just some in a few areas of Georgia and the Carolinas, which were under Union control at at the time this was issued, and which had not been listed as officially exempt in the proclamation. Now, good for them, good for those slaves who were freed by this, of course, but this is not remotely the end of slavery in America, as many people would believe, based just on the name Emancipation Proclamation. Secretary of State William Seward summed up the shortcomings and kind of contradictions of the Emancipation Proclamation as follows, quote, We show our sympathy with slavery by emancipating slaves where we cannot reach them and holding them in bondage where we can set them free, end quote. And that's the truth. The proclamation, the vast majority of it only applied to areas of the South over which the Union in early 1863 had no control. So, in other words, Lincoln is declaring free, for the most part, slaves which he has no physical ability to reach at the time. And when it comes to places where the Union is fully in control, for the most part, Lincoln exempts them. Those specific parts of Louisiana and Virginia, for example, were places where the Union was totally in control. Slaves there, not free. In addition, it did not at all apply to the slave states still in the Union, such as Kentucky, Missouri, Maryland, and Delaware. Lincoln himself, again, said this was entirely a tactical move to try and weaken the South in the war. He hoped that it would cause a massive slave uprising in the South when they heard about it, and it did not. He also hoped that it would have an effect on global opinion on the war and would ultimately discourage 
European intervention, which it more or less did. Of course, the most important country in terms of foreign affairs in the minds of both sides of the American Civil War was Great Britain, then the world's most powerful empire, as well as the world's naval superpower. And the British did, especially in the early parts of this war, have some sympathies with the Confederacy for a variety of reasons. And as long as the war was explicitly not remotely concerned with the issue of slavery, the British felt like they kind of could potentially at least support the South. But by issuing the Emancipation Proclamation, even though its actual effect on freeing slaves at the moment was very limited, it nonetheless had this aura of changing the aim of the war for the Union side. And the British had gotten rid of slavery back in 1833 and had been committed to opposing slavery in the slave trade ever since. They'd even used their navy for years to try and suppress what was left of the international slave trade. And in general, the British people and British government, after the Emancipation Proclamation, found it harder to potentially sympathize with and side with the South. And while it's not the only reason, it definitely is a big part of why ultimately the British decided not to intervene in this war. Now, not everyone in Britain or for other European countries, for that matter, were sold on the notion that this war really was a humanitarian crusade to abolish slavery, and some called BS on the Emancipation Proclamation itself. For example, the London Spectator said of it, quote, the principle is not that a human being cannot justly own another, but that he cannot own him unless he's loyal to the United States. End quote. Now, the proclamation definitely had symbolic significance in America as well. It caused both sides to now believe that a Union victory would probably cause the end of slavery in short order. And understandably, this made a lot of Southerners very, very unhappy and worried, but it also angered a lot of the North. There were dropped there were riots and other forms of protest in the North. A lot of Northerners had been quite willing to fight a war to, quote-unquote, hold the South in the Union. But when they were told it was a war to free slaves, while some more radical abolitionist types in New England might have been happy, lots and lots of other Northerners were really, really pissed about that. And you have to remember that just because the North hadn't had slavery for a while doesn't mean that there weren't still plenty of virulent races, racists throughout many parts of the North. And one of the places where it got really bad was in New York City, where there were massive riots, in part in response to this war now being about fighting to free the slaves. A lot of kind of working class people in New York felt like, I don't want to go risk my life for some, you know, as they would have said, some sort of darky or what have you. And there were massive riots in New York against that and also against the fact that at the same time this was happening... The military draft was going into high gear on both sides, but obviously in New York, they're angry about the Northern draft. So there were massive riots in New York City, and tragically, as often happens, the people who suffered the most from this sort of thing were innocent victims, in many cases, simply the, the black population of New York City. They were victimized and abused, and many of them killed during these riots. Now, as the war started to shift, you might think it would be time for someone to come up with brilliant ideas of... What do you actually do if the Union wins and frees millions of slaves in the South? How do you handle that? You've got millions of people who've been kept in a state of slavery for many generations, and in that have been kept from being able to acquire much in the way of property, in most cases none at all. And same thing with education, in most cases were 
kept from acquiring any of it at all. And overall, were kept, not by their own choosing, in a state of subservience and dependence. And if you suddenly tell them, hey, tomorrow, several million of you are free. How do, what does that look like? How does that work? How do they get a decent start in life? For years before becoming president, Lincoln had consistently said he opposed slavery, but he himself said his own words that he had no earthly idea what to do, no solution what to do with the slaves once they were set free. And one thing that he repeatedly supported for a long time before becoming president and while in office was the idea of colonization. Now, this was a a longstanding thing in certain American political circles going back, I think, at least to the 1820s, if not the 18-teens. And there was even something called the American Colonization Society uh, dedicated to this cause. It ultimately resulted in the starting of the colony known as Liberia on the coast of West Africa, initially started as a place for former American slaves to to move to. And it was based on kind of quasi-racist, well, not quasi, fully racist ideas that, number one, blacks and whites can never live side by side successfully if the blacks are not in a position of slavery. And on the idea that while a black person is entitled to human rights, they're really only entitled to them fully if they are, as somebody like Lincoln would have put it at the time, in their native clime. In other words, if they're back in Africa. So Lincoln's concept of what rights blacks should enjoy was actually dependent on geography. He said this repeatedly during his campaigns um, for the Senate and I think even for the presidency, if I recall, in 1860. In those same speeches where he said some of the racist stuff I mentioned in the last installment of the series where he said things like, he wanted he wanted blacks to be freed, but he also didn't want them to be able to be on juries or to be able to intermarry with white people or yada, 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 to have, basically to have equal rights. He was against that. And so the solution for somebody like Lincoln or somebody like Henry Clay, who thought very similarly, was free the slaves and then ship them all back to Africa. And they can be equal to other blacks back in Africa, but they can't stay here. That was Lincoln's preferred solution. And there's a whole book on it called Colonization After Emancipation. The most common place proposed to send millions of American slaves once they were freed was either West Africa, but there were also some proposals to maybe find a spot in South America or the Caribbean to do this. And it's based on these kind of almost eugenist, eugenicist ideas of certain races of humans can only survive and thrive in certain climates, and it's best if you send the Africans back to some tropical place. And Lincoln firmly supported this. He said in his own words that blacks and whites couldn't successfully live alongside each other in conditions of freedom and equality. And in fact, Lincoln met with a group of black leaders during the Civil War for the purpose of urging them to set a good example for other blacks by leaving the United States as soon as possible. And even fairly late in the war, Lincoln was trying to get funds appropriated from Congress in order to ship emancipated slaves over to Africa. Now, most black leaders of the day and most genuine abolitionists, of which Lincoln was not, objected to this idea of colonization as a solution on a variety of grounds. And they pointed out, look, a lot of these black slaves have had ancestors here in America going back to the 1600s. They have just as much of a right to be here as any white person. Furthermore, they have the claim to some of the land that they were the ones who actually 
made a lot of the land of the southern United States profitable through their labor. And therefore, they have kind of almost a homestead type of a right to some of that land because it was made productive on their expropriated labor. And in addition, a lot of them saw colonization for what it was, an attempt to carry out almost a form of, well, not almost, it was a form of ethnic cleansing, just a way to try to avoid having to offer equal rights to the black population of America. The alternative to colonization in Lincoln's mind was more or less nothing, or at least virtually nothing. When, of all people, Confederate Vice President Alexander Stevens had a meeting with Abe Lincoln in February of 1865 about the ending of the war, which was pretty close to winding down by then. During this meeting, Stevens asked Lincoln what would be done about the freed slaves in the South. And Lincoln responded by telling a story, he always liked to tell stories, about an old pig farmer who, with a hard winter approaching, said to his livestock, root hog or die. That was Lincoln's suggestion to the uh, to the freed slaves, root hog or die. In other words, he was saying, yeah, the freed slaves are just going to have to figure out how to how to get by. They're just going to figure out how to make a living and integrate themselves into society. Now, there was something created that's known as the Freedmen's Bureau, more on this later, and it was better than nothing. It did help some slaves get a decent start in life, but it didn't come remotely close to meeting the needs of of not just the black population, but even the white population of the South in the aftermath of the destruction of the war. Now, apparently, in his second inaugural address in 1865, Lincoln either had come to the conclusion or perhaps just found it expedient to say that the war had in fact been about slavery all along, something which he vehemently rejected in the first, you know, close to two years of the war, and he furthermore claimed in the second inaugural that the country, both North and South, had suffered so much death and destruction because of some sort of divine karma or retribution from God for having had slavery in the United States for so long. So this is his second inaugural, March 4, 1865. And this segment I'm going to share with you comes after, in the first part, Lincoln sums up the roles of secession and slavery in bringing about the war. And then he goes on to explicitly say that the war is about slavery and concludes the speech with a request that reconstruction be just and charitable towards the South so that there will be a decent peace. So this is from Lincoln's second inaugural address on the occasion corresponding to this four years ago, all thoughts were anxiously directed to an impending civil war. All dreaded it. All sought to avert it. While the inaugural address was being delivered from this place, devoted altogether to saving the Union without war, insurgent agents were in the city seeking to destroy it without war, seeking to dissolve the Union and divide effects by negotiation. Both parties deprecated war, but one of them would make war rather than let the nation survive, and the other would accept war rather than let it perish. And the war came. You gotta love how he gives, like, the agency to the war itself. Like, the war came. It just happened. It fell on us. Continuing on. One-eighth of the whole population were colored slaves, not distributed generally over the Union, but localized in the southern part of it. These slaves constituted a peculiar and powerful interest. All knew that this interest was, somehow, the cause of the war. 
to strengthen, perpetuate, and extend this interest was the object for which the insurgents would rend the Union, even by war, while the government claimed no right to do more than to restrict the territorial enlargement of it. Now, so far, he's, he's more or less, in, in that last segment I just read, accurately characterized what he said in his first inaugural. But then he goes on to get all biblical and religious, which is funny in light of the fact that many experts on Lincoln believe he may very well have been an atheist or something close to it. But he certainly knew how to pander to his audience. He knew a lot of his audience were very biblical. And certainly it's better if you're the president who's just presided over the bloodiest four years of American history. It's certainly better if you can shift the responsibility for the bloodshed as much as possible away from you as an individual, the president, and instead kind of give it to a combination of God and the nation as a whole. Well, kind of everybody's responsible, really, for this war. Lincoln says, quote, The Almighty has his own purposes. If we shall suppose that American slavery is one of those offenses which, in the providence of God, must needs come, but which, having continued through his appointed time, he now wills to remove, and that he gives to both North and South this terrible war, as the woe due to those by whom the offense came, shall we discern therein any departure from those divine attributes which the believers in a living God always ascribe to him? Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet, if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil, by which he means slavery, shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. End quote from Lincoln's second inaugural. So he's basically saying, yeah, the bloodshed and destruction faced by both the North and the South is kind of divine karma inflicted on the whole nation by God for having had slavery. And by the way, as I've mentioned in a previous episode a long time ago, if that's the case, if God's simply smiting the United States with this war to punish even the North for having tolerated slavery in the United States for that long, why didn't he smote the living crap out of Brazil, which had a nastier form of slavery and for longer than the United States had slavery? How come Brazil was able to phase out slavery with relatively little bloodshed and nothing resembling a giant civil war? Aside from the fact that it should bother you, regardless of your beliefs regarding religion and all that, it really should bother you, I think at least, anytime any politician claims that he kind of knows God's plans or something like that. It should kind of terrify and disturb you, I think. Anyway, in the immediate aftermath of the war, which ended not long after Lincoln delivered that second inaugural, the two main questions facing the nation were, Number one, how would the reconquered South be treated from now on? And number two, what would happen in regard to all the freed slaves? Because, okay, you've, by the end of the war, the 13th Amendment is getting ratified, and that says officially slavery, chattel slavery, as it has been known up till now, is officially done in the United States. But that just then raises the question of, okay, you've got millions of people who've been slaves for many generations, and now what do they do? 
How do they start making a living from like literally nothing and doing so in a society that is largely hostile to them and that is going to see them as the ultimate cause of all the destruction that has been wrought upon the South? That's very likely to, and it turns out to be this way, to scapegoat the former slaves as being the cause of all the bloodshed. Now, in regards to the southern states, Lincoln adopted a fairly magnanimous plan once they had surrendered, and his plan was that all conquered southern states would have to do to be officially back in the Union in good standing would be to have 10% of their 1860 voting population form a new government that swore to accept the U.S. Constitution and accepted the end of slavery. Now, there were a lot of Northerners who thought this was way too nice, and they wanted to punish the South a lot more. Whether Lincoln would have succeeded in getting his very mild reconstruction plan through and keeping it in place is open for debate. I don't think there's any way to say, because on April 14, 1865, he goes to the theater and gets killed. Prior to his death, Lincoln was already starting to experience some resistance for his uh, Reconstruction plan from the so-called Radical Republicans in Congress. Lincoln was much more of a moderate. The Radical Republicans really wanted to do a lot more on behalf of the former slaves. They also wanted to force a lot more conditions and change on the South. Had Lincoln not been assassinated, had he served out his entire second term as president, you've got to wonder, A, if he would have been successful implementing his mild reconstruction plan, or would he have had similar battles with Congress as his successor did, more on that later, and or wondering if reconstruction would have gone much differently, perhaps better, perhaps worse, under him than under his successors. And I think you also have to wonder, had he not been assassinated and served out a whole second term, would history have treated Lincoln nearly as kindly as it mostly has? if he'd not been assassinated and thus been prevented from having that very unhappy second term that most two terms presidents experience. And plus he would have been dealing with the giant quagmire mess that reconstruction turns into. And would he have handled it any better than the people who did preside over it after he died? I don't know. Anyway, speaking of reconstruction, this is a term that refers to the experience of the South from the end of the Civil War in 1865 until approximately 1876-77. And I'll probably mention briefly why that time period is considered the end of Reconstruction. During this time period, there were large numbers of federal troops still occupying various parts of the South, and the South is having to jump through various hoops to get back into the Union, and you have all this devastation wrought by the war itself that destroyed so much property and killed so many people. And you've got the whole question of all the freed slaves and what's to be done about them. And I have to say, looking at Reconstruction as a whole, nobody really did very well at this. Nobody comes out of this thing looking very impressive. And unfortunately, those who bore the worst of the consequences of Reconstruction ended up being the blacks in the South, the former slaves. In the immediate aftermath of the war, the freed slaves had massively high expectations as to what would happen to them and getting equal rights and that sort of thing. And sadly, at the end of it all, most of them would have their hopes eventually dashed. Many white Southerners, basing their opinions on close to 200 years of ideology and propaganda characterizing all blacks as brutes, believed that 
the newly freed slaves first priorities would be something along the lines of an orgy of pillage and rape. In fact, for the most part, the slaves real priorities were things like maximizing their own personal independence as they perceived it in one way or another, most commonly through the combination of acquiring education and property wherever possible. Many former slaves also placed a very high priority on reuniting with loved ones from whom they'd been separated over the years due to things like sale and so on. Quite understandably, most newly freed slaves sought to avoid any work or social relationships that reminded them of their former position. So, for example, if they did hire themselves out as farm laborers, they generally preferred to work for planners and overseers who were not the same guys who had previously been their masters and their overseers. And in general, they sought work with maximum autonomy. And they tried to maximize their autonomy and independence in a lot of other ways, too. For example, many of the slaves who had previously attended white churches began attending separate black churches, and so on. Historians say that by the end of the 1860s, the total segregation of churches in the South was pretty much a done deal. And by the way, just in case you don't live in the South and don't know this, it's, for the most part, still quite true. It is rare to find a very highly integrated church congregation in the South. And I've heard people say something to the effect that, like, the South is still rigidly segregated Sunday morning. Historian Peter Colchin talks about some of the situations that the freed slaves faced and some of the choices they made. Quote, In the countryside, where the vast majority of freed people remained, blacks struggled to square free labor with their own ideas of freedom. Faced with a variety of possible agricultural relationships, they repeatedly opted for those that afforded the greatest autonomy and resisted those that smacked of slave-like subservience. Seeking most of all to acquire land of their own, they generally favored rental and sharecropping arrangements over dependent labor and vigorously resisted remnants of the old order, such as gang labor under the supervision of overseers. End quote. Now, sharecropping, as probably many of you know, was not often a great deal from a purely financial arrangement, but freedmen preferred it if the only other choice was wage labor, because sharecroppers usually had more personal independence and control over kind of their daily life and work schedule and routine and stuff than did most other forms of kind of like wage labor. Now, in the War Department of the U.S. government, a special office called the Bureau of Refugees, Freedmen, and Abandoned Lands, better known to history as the Freedmen's Bureau, was set up under General Oliver O. Howard, by the way, for, for whom Howard University is named. The Bureau's main jobs were to help both blacks and whites who were destitute because of the effects of the war, and to help transition the South's economy to a free labor economy, and to help the freedmen themselves transition to freedom including things like the establishment of schools for blacks. Now, it was definitely well-intended, but the Bureau was woefully not up to the task in terms of resources of dealing with the massive destruction and dislocation caused by the war and just kind of the chaotic situation, honestly, caused, caused by emancipation. Now, again, none of this is to say that emancipation should be done, but simply to say when you do it and you do have millions of slaves suddenly freed, it creates a, a chaotic situation. At its peak, to give you a sense of how woefully inadequate it was, at its peak, the Freedmen's Bureau had only 12 agents for the entire state of Mississippi. 
one of the highest black population states in the South. They had 12 agents for the whole state. And the Bureau's budget never rose above $7 million. Even in the 1860s, this was a, a tiny pittance compared to what really would have been necessary to rebuild the South and get the former slaves off to some kind of a decent start. And the Bureau was mostly shut down by 1868, just three years after the war anyway. Now, one possibly excellent solution, in my opinion, given the South's agrarian economy and, and a way to to give the slaves kind of a stake in things, the former slaves, I should say, a stake in things and help them really get their feet under themselves, would be to somehow get them at least the opportunity to acquire some land. And this also wouldn't burden the taxpayers at large very much either. Now, there were a few radical Republicans in Congress, such as Thaddeus Stevens, who was one of the people who really made the idea of 40 acres and a mule a popular slogan among radicals for a while. And Thaddeus Stevens and a few other radicals, they proposed redistributing plantation lands to slaves. Now, what they're doing, what they're saying and why they're proposing it, your knee-jerk reaction might be, oh my gosh, redistributing, this is communist, this is anti-private property. But in fact, when you look into how they explain their rationale for doing this, the way they talked about slaves getting little farms out of plantation land was they simply applied the concept of natural rights and homesteading, principles which are very much consistent with those of people like Murray Rothbard and Lysander Spooner and even John Locke to this sort of situation. Congressman Stevens said that giving the freedmen some confiscated land, you know, that had been part of their former master's plantations would, quote, make them, the freedmen, independent of their old masters so that they may not be compelled to work for them upon unfair terms. Nothing is more likely to make a man a good citizen as to make him a freeholder, end quote. He also said of the plantation land in the South, quote, have they not a right to it? Referring to the slaves, the former slaves, they and their masters have toiled, not for years, but for ages, without one farthing of recompense. They have earned for their masters this very land and much more. Will not he who denies them compensation now be accursed, for he is an unjust man? End quote. So it's kind of the idea of homesteading. You have these slaves whose labor is what made this land productive in the first place, and this was all done without their consent to it. Shouldn't they, by kind of natural rights and homesteading concepts, have some sort of a claim to at least some of this land in the South? However, most politicians, North and South, saw this only as an affront to private property. They didn't even remotely question whether or not the owners of massive plantations should really be considered people who have a legitimate right to all that land. Ironically, they were saying this in the federal government, uh, you know, that these these radical proposals from people like Stevens were an affront to private property. At the very same time, the federal government was assessing massive confiscatory taxes on the South in order to punish them for their attempt at secession and to get them to pay for as much of the union's war costs as possible. By the way, some of these punitive taxes on the South remained in place until the 1930s. So slapping punitive taxes on an entire region of the country is not an affront to private property, but claiming that a slave's labor might actually entitle him to some of the land that he used to work is. Instead of putting in place some sort of a situation in which 
most of the slaves would have access to something along the lines of 40 acres and a mule, Congress passed something much, much more limited called the Homestead, sorry, the Southern Homestead Act of 1866, separate from the the Homestead Act that was passed during the war, which mostly applied out west. Now, the Southern Homestead Act of 1866 opened up some unused land, some vacant land, what would be considered public domain at the time, in five of the southern states to homesteading. And it tended to be the more lightly populated southern states that had this land available still. But the problem was in the details of how you actually would go about getting title to some of this land. The procedures to get land under this law were very complicated and expensive, so much so that of all people, recently freed slaves didn't have much chance of being able to fulfill the requirements. In order to claim your land, you had to go to a federal land office, which oftentimes would be far away and hard to get to. Then you would have to file a claim, which was not an easy thing to, to fill out, especially if you're not literate or barely literate. You would have to hire a surveyor, and you would have to pay a bunch of other fees and things to get title to 40 acres of southern land. Now, as a result of how complicated this was and how expensive it could be, in the late 1860s, only about 4,000 blacks out of a population close to 4 million in the South at the time were able to go through with this and actually acquire a 40-acre piece of land from the Southern Homestead Act. Most of those 4,000 who did go through with it, by the way, were in Florida. And I'm not 100% sure why this is the case, other than perhaps at the time there may have been more unclaimed land available in Florida than anywhere else in the former Confederate states, because I'm pretty sure Florida was the least populated of all the Confederate states. But anyway... More blacks managed to simply just buy land on the open market, hard as that often could be for them at the time due to financial limitations. More of them actually managed to just buy land than managed to get it under this Southern Homestead Act. So it was, relatively speaking, useless. A fraction of a percent of Southern blacks were able to get land through that procedure. Between 1870 and 1910, the percentage of black Southern agricultural families who actually owned their own land did increase. It increased from about 2% to about 24% over that 40-year period. And black land ownership was highest in the upper South states, where, in fact, almost half of black farm families owned their own land around the turn of the 19th to the 20th century. Now, in addition to trying to get their hands on some land, former slaves also frequently craved education. As historian Peter Colchin puts it, quote, Denied schooling as slaves, freed blacks associated it with freedom and enthusiastically sought access to education, end quote. In fact, both adults and children flocked to these schools wherever they were available. These black schools got as much help as they could from the Freedmen's Bureau and from some northern kind of philanthropic charitable institutions of various types. But they also shelled out a lot of their own money for education. In fact, quite a substantial amount in proportion to how meager the means were of most of these black families in the South at the time. And aside from kicking in money, blacks in the South also contributed their own labor to doing things like building schoolhouses. And there were significant gains made in things like reducing black illiteracy. It still remained a lot higher than than white illiteracy, but it was improved in statistically significant ways. Now, in the realm of politics, during the Reconstruction era, in many areas, blacks, in fact, could vote. 
And while they were always underrepresented relative to their actual numbers, freedmen nonetheless achieved some pretty significant political offices during Reconstruction. You even had some black members of Congress and things like that, and some significant state and local officials during the Reconstruction era were in fact black throughout the South. Some blacks, though, lamented that some of the free slaves often seemed to keep some of the vestiges of what, for lack of a better term, we might call the slave mindset long after they were nominally set free, and in in at least some instances, pass those attitudes down to their own descendants. So, for example, in the early 20th century, a man named Nate Shaw, who'd been born in the 1880s and whose father had been a freed slave, said in an interview, quote, My daddy was a free man. In his acts, he was a slave. Didn't look ahead to profit himself and nothing that he done. Is it or not an old slave act? anything a man do in a slum way and don't care way, I just lap it right back on slavery time days, end quote. Nate Shaw in that interview also lamented the fact that his own children exhibited some of these tendencies towards what could be characterized as a slave-like attitude as well. That said, plenty of former slaves did do reasonably well for themselves, at least for a while. Some did become prosperous and so on, but many also faced all kinds of backlash as well. And ultimately, Reconstruction would fail to live up to expectations by a wide margin, especially the expectations of the former slaves. And again, there's a lot of blame to go around. Very, very tragically, um, white racism in the South became actually a lot more militant and violent after emancipation than it ever had been before, as many of the defeated Southerners took out their anger on the freedmen who were very convenient scapegoats being, relatively speaking, weak in terms of finances and resources and support, often being unable to fight back effectively, except where backed by Union troops. And terrorist groups like the Ku Klux Klan proliferated during Reconstruction, and they pretty much never fought directly against Union troops. Instead, much more often, they would vent their frustrations on blacks who couldn't defend themselves very well. Peter Colchin writes of this situation whereby racism and its physical manifestations got worse after the end of slavery than they had been during it. Quote, Slavery had, ironically, shielded its victims from the most extreme consequences of racism. With enslaved blacks apparently safely under control, masters commonly stressed their paternalistic duty to protect their dependent human property. Emancipation not only freed the slaves from direct slave owner control, it also freed the masters from their protective role and attitude. Free blacks, especially those who asserted their equal rights, proved far more threatening than slaves to whites who took racial inferiority for granted. Throughout the South, racially inspired violence erupted, directed especially at independent blacks whose behavior seemed insufficiently deferential. The ease with which many paternalists adopted the tactics of thugs reveals the thin line that had always separated paternalism from thuggery, a point missed by those who see depiction of slave owner paternalism as an effort to whitewash slavery. End quote. And of course, since slaves were a valuable form of property, masters did have an economic incentive to not kill or maim their slaves for light reasons. But with emancipation, no one anymore saw them as a form of property, and the downside of that, tragically, is that maiming and lynching of blacks in the South drastically increased. Now, what I just said and, and what I just read you from Colchin, 
I don't think Holchin and I know that I am not bringing this up to try and somehow defend slavery and say that emancipation shouldn't have been done, but more to point out this tragic situation where in the South, because of a couple of centuries of racist ideology, you have this awful tragic situation in which many blacks find themselves in more physical danger after being set free than they were while they were a slave. Now, anyway, getting back to kind of politics in general and how this affected Reconstruction in the South, Lincoln was considered a moderate Republican, but of course he's assassinated. Congress had a lot of radical Republicans, especially after the midterm elections of 1866, and they really wanted to punish the South more, force more reforms on the South, and do more to try and promote equal rights for blacks, especially they were obsessed with black voting rights. Because, of course, which party are Southern blacks at the time going to vote for? Overwhelmingly, they're voting for the party of Lincoln. Lincoln's successor, his vice president, who takes over when he's assassinated, ends up being a very awkward figure for this situation. His name is Andrew Johnson, and he is actually a Southerner and a Democrat. But he was pro-Union side in the Civil War, and as a result, he was chosen to be Lincoln's running mate in 1864. He had not been Lincoln's vice president in Lincoln's first term. Now, it's possible that Lincoln, because of who he was, because he was a Republican, and because he was the president who just prosecuted the war, maybe Lincoln could have gotten away with his moderate, generous, easygoing Reconstruction program, and somehow or other gotten Congress to to tolerate it. But a guy like Andrew Johnson who's both a Democrat and a Southerner, he's from Tennessee, the radical Republicans in the Congress are going to have absolutely no willingness to let him get his way on being easy on the South. Now, Andrew Johnson may have been pro-Union, but he still had a lot of racist attitudes. And not only did he want to take it easy on the, on the South as far as what they had to do to get back in the Union, he also was not interested in any sort of major effort to safeguard black rights in the South. And this is going to cause massive political conflict, and then this is going to continue on for quite a while until the 1870s. Ultimately, Andrew Johnson is going to be impeached, and while he ends up being acquitted by one vote, he's one vote short in the Senate of being thrown out of office, he nonetheless gets more or less um, politically outmaneuvered and emasculated by the Congress, who very quickly after Andrew Johnson puts in place a very mild reconstruction program, the Congress seizes the initiative and forces their own more radical plan. Now, in the very early days of reconstruction, with Lincoln and then Johnson putting these very mild requirements on the South to get back into the Union and to have functioning state governments again, what ends up happening is that under this very laid-back reconstruction plan, most Southern states very quickly meet the requirements and are able to start electing state and federal officials, and a lot of the people they're electing are former Confederate leaders and generals and stuff. And Southern state legislatures, soon after the end of the war and the passage of the 13th Amendment, pass black codes, which are laws which pay lip service to freed blacks' rights, but really are focused on denying a lot of the most important rights to them. So, for example, it would vary a little bit from state to state in the South as far as exactly what was in there, but black codes would often contain things like limitation on property and other rights for blacks, no right to bear arms. That's a lot of America's earliest gun control is about that. They were banned from intermarrying with whites, 
black codes might also ban blacks from getting alcohol. They began to place limitations on things like movement at night, uh, congregating in large numbers. They were barred from certain occupations. They were subject to being forced to labor. Basically, this was done through the judicial system. There would be things put in place which allowed blacks who were accused of vague things like loitering or vagrancy to be sentenced to forced labor. And this was often applied very, very generously and loosely and was frequently a way to get former slaves to more or less have to do forced labor. Now, Johnson's very lenient reconstruction plan, which was in part based on Lincoln's reconstruction plan, resulted in all of the Confederate states meeting his little benchmarks and being able to send representatives to the Congress by December of 1865. And a lot of the people they send to the Congress are former Confederate leaders. When this happens, the radical Republicans in Congress refuse to seat these new Southern representatives. They refuse to recognize these new congressmen and, and the Southern governments as being legit. And they institute their much more aggressive Reconstruction plan, which includes the 14th Amendment, which Andrew Johnson opposed. It was passed by the Congress in 1866 and took another two years to be ratified by the states. Basically, the 14th Amendment was aimed at guaranteeing that not only were black people free from slavery, but that they would have full citizenship rights, which for black males would also include the right to vote. The Radical Republicans' readmission process for the defeated Confederate states, which were spelled out in a series of laws called the Reconstruction Acts, required them to ratify the 14th Amendment. Basically, the Reconstruction Acts amounted to things like the following. The former Confederate states will, will continue to be under military occupation, and voters, including black male citizens, would then have elections to elect delegates to write a new state constitution, and it had to explicitly safeguard black voting rights in it. And then the voters of that state would have to ratify these and then elect a new state government. And at that point, the state government would have to ratify the 14th Amendment. And if they did all that stuff, then and only then would a southern state be fully back in the union, sending members to Congress, etc. Now, Andrew Johnson was against all this, but the Congress basically outmaneuvered him, um, impeached him, all this sort of thing, and were able to kind of force their way on him. If I recall correctly, I think they even passed a lot of this stuff over his veto. The 15th Amendment ratified in 1870 explicitly dealt with voting rights, which was one of the things that the Republicans in Congress were always the most concerned about. And the 15th Amendment prohibits anyone, uh, any you know, state or local authorities from denying voting rights due to race, color, or previous condition of servitude. So because of this, because there was some protection for black rights, and because there were actually Union troops that could enforce things like the 14th and 15th Amendment and so on, there was some gains in rights for the black population in the South. But by the mid-1870s, the status of the former slaves was just no longer a major national issue that anyone but they themselves and a few radicals left over cared about. Even a lot of the radical Republicans had moved on to other things by then, and almost nobody cared much about the issue outside of the South. And what would ultimately bring about the end of any sort of Reconstruction would be the 1876 presidential election between Samuel Tilden, the Democrat that year, and Rutherford B. Hayes. Now, Tilden won the popular vote, but the electoral vote was in dispute. And the Democrats in Congress tried to block Hayes' inauguration when the Republicans put together a, com a commission to investigate the election. There were a couple of states where the vote was disputed, kind of like 2000. 
and the Republicans, who had a a slight majority in Congress at the time, put together an investigative commission that looked into it. And of course, the commission had more Republicans than Democrats. And of course, they came to the conclusion that the Republican, Rutherford B. Hayes, had won the election. Now, the, the Democrats pushed back and tried to use their pull in Congress to block Hayes' inauguration, and um, eventually a deal had to be brokered. It's known as the Compromise of 1877. And the gist of it is that the Democrats will back off and allow Rutherford B. Hayes to be president, but Rutherford B. Hayes promises to basically end Reconstruction. He does some other favors for the South, but the big one is he ends Reconstruction. He removes all the federal troops and basically in so doing, removes anyone in the South who's likely to really enforce things like the Reconstruction Laws and the 14th and 15th Amendments and protect black rights and so on. And pretty quickly, with that done, Southern Democrats in most states very quickly are able to accomplish what they refer to as redemption, in most cases within 10 years or less. Redemption basically means taking back control of state and local governments from Republicans, who were mostly a combination of the freedmen, the former slaves, along with carpetbaggers, northerners who came into the South after the Civil War, and what were known as scalawags, who were southerners who became quote-unquote traitors by becoming Republicans. And southern white Southern Democrats accomplished redemption in most places within just a few years after the Compromise of 1877. Once they had, they had accomplished that, retaking control of state and local government, they were able to bring in legally sanctioned segregation, which eventually gets upheld by the Supreme Court in Plessy v. Ferguson. And they were able to bring in all sorts of obstacles to black rights, which, technically speaking, you would have to say violate the 14th and 15th Amendments. Things very similar to the black codes that they had tried to institute for a while right after the war, in which the radical Republicans had stopped. And in some cases, southern states even went to the lengths of replacing their state constitutions in order to get this done. In other words, long story short, not long after 1876-1877, this disputed election, the era of Jim Crow had fully arrived in the South. Now, I just want to mention a little bit by comparison of slavery ending in some other parts of the Western Hemisphere. As I've mentioned in this series, the Southern United States was by no means the only place with enslaved African workers. Slavery was the primary method of agricultural labor throughout most of the Caribbean and Latin American for centuries. But only in two places in the Western Hemisphere, namely in the United States and in Haiti, was the abolition of slavery accompanied by large-scale violence. By the way, the best book to read comparing how slavery was ended, the different paths it took to emancipation in various parts of the Western Hemisphere, is a book called Greatest Emancipations by Jim Powell. After comparing the abolition of slavery in a bunch of different places in the New World, Powell's conclusion is that there is an inverse relationship between the amount of violence involved in ending slavery in a given place versus how positive the ultimate outcome is for the freed slaves and their descendants and kind of their society overall. In other words, in places where there was little violence involved in ending slavery, the results, while certainly never perfect— tend to be much more positive overall than in places where there's a lot of bloodshed involved. And Powell is somebody, like I think also Jeffrey Hummel, author of Emancipating Slaves and Slaving Free Men, who's skeptical of the common mainstream notion that a giant war was absolutely necessary in the United States in order for slavery to go away. 
So, for example, the British abolished slavery throughout the British Empire in 1833, 32 years ahead of the American 13th Amendment. And it was a peaceful, gradual, compensated emancipation program. Not a whole lot different from what happened in a lot of the northeastern states after the American Revolution. Basically, in the British Empire, all slave children under age six at the time it was passed were immediately freed. And the rest of the slaves were gradually freed over four years during an apprenticeship period in which they were kind of partially free. And then after they served out this apprenticeship period, were set totally free. And Parliament appropriated 20 million pounds, quite a lot of money in those days, to compensate slave owners for losing their property. And the idea is this will kind of smooth things over and reduce the, the backlash and hatred and resistance of the slave owners. Now, you might be thinking, well, slavery is an immoral form of property. And I agree with that. But the notion, I guess, is one sort of, of due process that, hey, when these slaves were acquired, it was a legally sanctioned form of property. Therefore, they should be compensated. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, I'm morally fine with the concept of paying a slave owner off with taxpayer money when his slave is freed. But on the other hand, it does tend to make the situation more smooth in terms of the aftermath of it. And if you'll recall, by a good margin, the number one destination for slaves transported to the Western Hemisphere was Brazil, which had a ton of plantations, especially sugar plantations, and then also some coffee and other things, too. Now, I want to correct a slight error I realized I made a long time ago, way back in episode 49, Historical Lies by Omission, an episode that for the most part I'm very proud of. I did make a little bit of a factual error. I said that Brazil had a higher slave population than the U.S. on the eve of the Civil War, and that's incorrect. It had imported far, far more slaves than the southern U.S. ever did by a huge margin. But because of the much less healthy environment down in Brazil and the skewed gender ratio and the fact that sugar plantation life is generally much more unhealthy and hazardous than cotton or tobacco or whatever. Brazil, despite importing way more slaves than the U.S. ever did, they never achieved the natural population growth that American slaves were able to achieve. Oh, by the way, also skewed gender ratio. Down in Brazil, much more males than females among the slaves. In America, much more balanced. And so as a result, even though Brazil imported a lot more slaves than America did over the centuries. By the antebellum period, by the eve of the Civil War, the U.S. actually did have more slaves than Brazil. So, kind of ironically, America ended up having more slaves because the conditions for them were a lot better. But I do still stand by my basic point that I was making there, which, again, harkens back to that Lincoln Second Inaugural, the idea that if God was, as Lincoln said in his Second Inaugural, going around smiting countries— for having had slavery, then God still should have smote the hell out of Brazil pretty badly, because they'd actually imported a lot more slaves from Africa over the centuries, and in fact, the reason that they did have fewer slaves than America by the mid-19th century was actually the conditions in Brazil were a lot worse, which resulted in higher death rates and lower birth rates than slaves experienced in the southern U.S. So, Brazil was not smote with a giant, massive, bloody civil war as divine retribution, though. So, what gives? Is God asleep at the wheel with Brazil? What's going on, Abe? In fact, what happened in Brazil was a limited, gradual emancipation plan was implemented by the government in 1871. 
However, more radical abolitionists worked to end slavery altogether on a state-by-state basis in Brazil, starting with the state of Ceará, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, in Brazil in 1884. And once that state had totally abolished slavery in 1884, what happened was it had sort of a domino effect. Slaves began fleeing there from neighboring states, and those neighboring states then found it on a practical basis impossible to police their slaves, to recapture escapees, and so on. And so, as a result of the difficulty and expense of trying to do all that, the value of slaves plummeted, and what was left of slavery was ended throughout Brazil, decisively in 1888, without any sort of massive bloody war. This concept, by the way, seems to have been what some northern abolitionists in the U.S. had in mind in 1861. This might surprise you, but in 1861, in the very early days of the Civil War, a lot of northern abolitionists said that the South should be allowed to go, should be allowed to leave and form its own country without any resistance. And their argument was that if the South left and formed its own country, then the Union would no longer be obligated to help recapture and return fugitive slaves. And this would, they argued, make slavery impractical before long in the South, because it would become so difficult and so expensive for Southerners to maintain the institution without assistance from the North that they'd eventually give up on it. And slavery, they argued, would go away without a massive war. By the way, of all people, Confederate Vice President Alexander Stevens once said something to the effect that slavery would actually be more secure if the South stayed inside the Union than if it left. Kind of interesting. And it's one of those what if, it's one of those thought experiments, who knows, but if the South had been allowed to just leave peacefully, and if the North had been committed to, hey, if slaves escape to here, we're giving them shelter and not sending them back, could that have led to a domino effect somewhat similar to what happened to Brazil that would eventually make slavery such an expensive and impractical thing that the South would face it out anyway? And could that be accomplished without, by low estimates, over 600,000 people having to die? Now again, outside the U.S. and Haiti, which I did a Patreon bonus special episode on a while ago, slavery was abolished everywhere else but those two places, for the most part, peacefully. Now, there, there might be a little bit of violence here and there, little uprisings and resistance and whatever, but in general, mostly quite peacefully, usually through some sort of plan of gradual and or compensated emancipation. And several economic historians have argued that when you crunch the data, and you look at how much money the Union ended up spending in this massively expensive war that we know as the Civil War, it was actually more than enough to purchase and free all the slaves in the South and give them each 40 acres and a mule. Ponder that. Now, I want to talk a little bit about some of the legacies of slavery and legacies of the way in which it ended and what happened after the Civil War and the lingering effects of the racialist ideologies that had long accompanied the institution. In his book, Inhuman Bondage, historian David Brian Davis argues that dehumanization is really the central characteristic of slavery. He writes, quote, Chattel slavery is the most extreme example we have, not only of domination and oppression, but of human attempts to dehumanize other people, end quote. And tragically, 
that dehumanization that had been in place for so long, when the slaves were freed, tragically, the dehumanization of the blacks in the eyes of most Southern whites did not stop. And in some cases, it got nastier because, again, they no longer had the financial incentive to want to avoid physically harming their slaves, if at all possible. A very interesting piece of evidence to support this, lynchings hit their heyday, their high watermark, only about a century ago from right now. And that recently, you know, only 90, 100, 120 years ago, lynchings were hitting their high watermark in the United States. And in that time, whites who were involved in lynchings would frequently keep body parts, such as fingers, toes, ears, teeth, from the lynching victims as souvenirs. Massively morbid evidence that Davis's concept of dehumanization lingered on in regard to the former slaves and their descendants in the minds of many white Southerners long after slavery itself had been abolished. Now, lynching in general is, I think, a pretty disturbing prospect. The notion that somebody is subjected to mob violence and publicly killed, often accompanied with various types of torture and spectacle, on the flimsiest of accusations in many cases, and with nothing resembling a fair trial or anything like that. That's disturbing enough. But when you actually investigate some of the details of some of the lynchings that occurred in the Jim Crow era, it's even more disturbing than that. So one that David Brian Davis chronicles in his book, Inhuman Bondage, he's talking about slavery in various other cultures, including in a tribe called the Tupanamba, which is an indigenous tribe of Brazil, which practiced slavery in a way in which they dehumanized their slaves so much that they sometimes cannibalized them. And then David Brian Davis points out that as much as this might strike us as like way out there behavior, he points out that in America, only about a century ago, there was mutilation and things that, while not cannibalism, was not that far off the mark. David Brian Davis writes, quote, We are told that Southern whites eagerly gathered as souvenirs the lynched victims' fingers, toes, bones, ears, and teeth. In Paris, Texas, for example, some 10,000 whites came out in 1893 to participate in the lynching of Henry Smith, an insane former slave accused of raping and killing a three-year-old white girl in the mad wantonness of guerrilla ferocity. High on a platform, so the men, women, and children could see the torture of Smith, the father and brother of the dead girl applied white-hot irons to Smith's bare feet and tongue before burning out his eyes. One observer recalled a cry that echoed over the prairie like the wail of a wild animal. There was even a primitive gramophone to make a recording of Smith's ghastly cries. After the platform had been soaked with oil and set ablaze, cremating what was left of Smith, people raked the ashes to acquire quote-unquote nigger, buttons, bones, and teeth to keep as relics. As with the Tupanamba, we find a ritual sacrifice, consecrated by fire, designed to purge society of the ultimate domestic enemy. End quote. Now that's disturbing stuff, but there you have almost 30 years after the ending of slavery, some very searing evidence in this kind of thing didn't just happen once of the results 
of dehumanizing people. Perhaps surprisingly, at least it was to me when I first learned it, believe it or not, far, far more white people than black people were lynched in the South prior to the end of slavery. And maybe this isn't surprising, again, considering slaves were considered valuable property. In fact, historian Eugene Genovese wrote that in his estimation, less than 10% of the lynchings that took place in the South between 1840 and 1860 were of slaves. And most of those lynchings of slaves that did take place in that time would occur in the aftermath of a slave rebellion, when people believed to have been part of the rebellion would be killed. Also, perhaps surprisingly, historical evidence indicates that slaves received a much more fair hearing in southern courts of law in the antebellum period, even for crimes alleged such as rape and murder, than did nominally free black citizens at any time from the end of Reconstruction through the civil rights era in the mid-20th century. The courts in the antebellum period would even occasionally convict a southern white for murdering or assaulting or otherwise harming a slave. Again, that might surprise you, but it did happen. In the Jim Crow era, that's almost unthinkable. And the Southern legal system and its prison industrial complex from the end of Reconstruction often functioned as slavery under a new name. David Bryan Davis sums it up as follows, quote, Many black males were incarcerated for very minor or trumped-up offenses, and Southern governors long rented out such convict labor to lumber companies, mining industries, and large-scale farms, where guards with shotguns, seated on mules or horses, gave orders to slave-like gangs of blacks in striped uniforms, end quote. And I'll put a couple of books that I know of in the Amazon links for this episode that get into this stuff in more detail, this history of how, for much of the time period from the 1870s through at, at least the 1950s, if not quite a bit after that, you have this very, very slave-like system operating in much of the South. And of course, you could argue that in many areas that hasn't gone away. And in fact, the war on drugs over the last 40 years has in many ways just amplified this tendency. And if anything, the prison industrial complex has gotten far more lucrative than it used to be and made it not just a Southern affair, too. Looking back on the disappointments of what actually ended up happening after emancipation, in 1888, in a speech 25 years after the Emancipation Proclamation, Frederick Douglass, the great abolitionist activist and former slave himself, said, quote, I admit that the Negro has made little progress from barbarism to civilization, and that he is in deplorable condition since his emancipation that he is worse off in many respects than when he was a slave, I am compelled to admit it. But I contend that the fault is not his, but that of his heartless accusers. Though he is nominally free, he is actually a slave. I, here and now, denounce his so-called emancipation as a stupendous fraud, a fraud upon him, a fraud upon the world. End quote. And in 1963... On the 100-year anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation, Martin Luther King said the following, quote, This momentous decree came as a great beacon light of hope to millions of Negro slaves who had been seared in the flames of withering injustice. It came as a joyous daybreak to end the long night of their captivity. But 100 years later, we must face the tragic fact that the Negro is still not free. End quote. 
While legally enforced segregation was finally undone, for the most part, by the 1960s, other forms of de facto segregation have, of course, remained. And then, of course, again, you've got the war on drugs, which has been a very powerful tool to disproportionately target African-Americans. And I will, in the show notes for this episode, link to an article. Some of you may have already seen it when it came out a while back, caused a little bit of a stir. An article about how Nixon's sidekick, John Ehrlichman, admitted in an interview that the Nixon administration's main motivation, its main reason for kicking off the war on drugs in the late 60s and early 70s, the number one reason they did that was not concerns about public health. It was having a good reason from their perspective to target and disrupt and arrest and destroy anti-war and black rights organizations. The war on drugs ultimately started in its full-fledged modern form as just a club that the Nixon gang could use to clobber their enemies with it. And I'll link to it in the show notes. Ehrlichman said something like, yeah, basically we just wanted to target the blacks and the anti-war people. And we realized we couldn't get away with banning you for being black or, you know, just arresting you for being black or for being anti-war. So we came up with the war on drugs as a good excuse to go in there and harass these people and arrest them and whatever. So there you go. Now, as I wrap up this story, I just want to point out that in my mind anyway, there are a lot of parallels between the state and chattel slavery on a lot of levels. And I just want to briefly mention a few that come relatively quickly to my mind. I'm sure if I sat around and thought about it more, I'd probably come up with many more. I'm sure you listening can probably come up with more as well. The first one that comes readily to mind is that slavery and the state both only exist in the real physical world in any way because they exist as a concept in people's minds first. And they really don't exist in the physical world at all, right? I mean, there's you can point to a slave and a slave owner, but you can't point to slavery itself as a thing. It's just a concept. Same thing with the state. You can point to state agents and enforcers. You can point to buildings that house offices of the state. But the state itself is really just a concept in people's minds. That said, with both slavery and the state, just because they're not tangible things doesn't mean that people don't act based on their belief in these things, and doesn't mean that they can have effects, many of them really nasty. Another similarity I see between the state and the old-school institution of chattel slavery is that despite a lot of warm and fuzzy-sounding rhetoric and justifications and smoke and mirrors, both institutions ultimately, at the end of it all, do rest on coercion force. In other words, stated differently, we might say that both slavery and the state have a paternalistic veneer that claims to be looking out for you and doing things for your own good. But this paternalistic veneer simply covers a core of thuggishness. Scratch a paternalist and you'll quickly see a thug. In the case of both slavery and the state, those who are the first to turn against the institution are treated as, at best, crazy nutjobs, and at worst, as troublemakers trying to destroy civilization. You can go back and look at the first groups, well, the, the very first ones were Quakers, and even the other, other early people to be the first ones, after thousands of years of almost every society seeing slavery as just a given, who started to question the institution as such. Not to just say, oh, maybe you should treat your slaves a little bit nicer, a little bit more humane, but to say the institution itself is morally horrible. 
at its very root in its very concept. Those people who did it first, who were like, you know, a hundred or 200 or more years early were treated as crazy at best. And again, at worst as these horrible troublemakers who wanted to destroy human civilization. Well, when you look at how most kind of mainstream people treat anarchists or anyone along that stripe who at all questions the justifications of the state and whether or not it should continue to exist, they're treated in almost the exact same way as how the earliest abolitionists were treated. And perhaps you can take some comfort in that, because today we look back at the earliest abolitionists and see them as moral heroes way ahead of their time. Now, you know, whether or not people who are anti-state today will ever be seen in that light, I have no idea. But, you know, on a, on a sort of a down day, it might help buck you up. I know it does help me sometimes to think I might be a crazy loony fringe nut today. But by God, in three, four hundred years, someone might look back and consider me a visionary. Meh. Maybe that's just delusions of grandeur. I don't know. But again, it might help buck you up on a down day. Another similarity I see is that slavery, as David Bryan Davis repeatedly stresses, slavery dehumanizes the slaves. And that's where a lot of its power comes from. And I don't think anyone would argue that the state very often dehumanizes people. In particular, it very vehemently dehumanizes its quote-unquote enemies, both inside and outside of its own borders. And by getting people to believe that the state's enemies are inhuman, they get people who otherwise would be decent people with decent ethics to often commit horrible crimes. This sort of banality of evil concept that is borne out by things like the Stanford prison experiment or the Milgram experiments. If you combine the natural tendency of most people to submit and conform and obey authority with successful dehumanization of whoever's going to be the victim and the target, you can get some pretty nasty things being done by what otherwise might have been quote-unquote good people. Another similarity I would say is that people who've lived under these institutions rarely can imagine a world without them. And another similarity between slavery and the state is that many of its defenders acknowledge that both have severe problems, but at the end of the day, they describe it and defend it as a necessary evil, which, in my mind at least, seems to be a strong contender for a logical contradiction as a concept. If something is truly necessary, how can it be considered evil? And if something is truly evil, how can it be considered truly necessary? By the way, I'm going to link to an excellent piece by the great Robert Higgs illustrating how many of the arguments made against anarchism today are almost exactly the same as common arguments that were made against the abolition of slavery prior to the 19th century. In other words, the same arguments made in defense of the state today are echoes almost of the arguments made in defense of slavery a couple hundred years ago. I'll link to that in the show notes for this episode. It is, in my opinion, an absolutely brilliant piece. Many of you may have already uh, known about it, read it somewhere. It's been posted on multiple websites, but I'll link to it in case you have not. Very good food for thought. Anyway, I hope you found this episode, and for that matter, this entire series on American slavery, enlightening in some way. I know it's not happy stuff, but it's a very important part of American and world history. 
And I don't think anyone does themselves any favors by turning a blind eye to parts of history that don't fit into the sunshiny narrative they're trying to sell themselves. Now, I'm not sure I'll be leaving on my trek up to New Hampshire on Thursday, June 23rd. I may or may not be able to get in one more Dangerous History podcast episode prior to that. I'm not sure because at the same time I'm preparing to go to New Hampshire, I'm also wrapping up my summer classes. I'm going to have to grade their, their final exams and enter their grades in a big hurry before I leave for New Hampshire, all that. So I may or may not be able to get a new Dangerous History podcast episode prior to that weekend, but we'll see if I don't look for some stuff to come out shortly thereafter. I'm going to try my best to get an audio recording of my presentation there at Porkfest. If for some reason I'm not able to do so, or if it doesn't come out good and it's not listenable or whatever, then I'll record a version of it, me just doing it the normal podcast way, the same presentation. In addition, I may be able to do some episodes in the Silver Bullet. I've got, I think, like a 20-hour drive each way. So that's a lot of time to talk to myself in the Silver Bullet. So we'll see what I can do with that. In addition, I have some other other projects I'm working on, some other episodes I'm working on. It is possible I may be able to get one of them done prior to Porkfest, but I'm not guaranteeing it. So we'll see. I'm very much looking forward to any of you who are going to be at Porkfest uh, seeing you in person. Thank you for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. Please check out the website, profcj.org. That's profcj.org. There you can find show notes for all the episodes, links, and other information. You can also email subscribe to the website by putting in your email in the little subscribe box off to the side there. And if you do that, you'll get an email notification every time something new is posted at the website. I promise you won't get any spam or anything uh, from me if you sign up there. You'll just get an announcement every time something new is posted on the website, which most of the time means a new episode, but occasionally is another sort of announcement or what have you. Please feel free to contact me with questions, comments, or other things. The email address is profcj at profcj.org. That's profcj at profcj.org. You can also connect with the show and follow it on social media. Like us on Facebook, follow on Twitter, and you can find the show in podcast venues such as iTunes and Stitcher. You can subscribe there. Uh, By subscribing in iTunes, you'll help the show rise in the iTunes charts, and of course, that will help grow the show's audience. If you like this show and want to see it continue to keep going and to grow and to improve, there are a lot of ways you can help support it. One is simply to spread the word about the Dangerous History podcast to anyone you think might appreciate it. You can also help spread the word by leaving ratings and reviews in podcast venues like iTunes and Stitcher. And of course, we very much need and appreciate financial support. You can go to profcj.org donate to see a whole bunch of different ways that you would help the show out financially. One, of course, is patreon.com profcj, where if you pledge to help out the show with a donation of at least $1 per episode, Remember, not only will I thank you by name in the next episode that I make, but you'll also have access to bonus episodes that I put there periodically that are available nowhere else. You can also make one-time or recurring donations via PayPal at profcj.org donate, and I have a Bitcoin address if you want to donate that way. And of course, a final way you can help out the show financially is when you do your Amazon shopping, go to Amazon through any of my affiliate Amazon links on my website. And if you do that, The Dangerous History Podcast will get a small cut, a little commission from anything you purchase at no additional cost to you. Thanks again for listening. 
This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.